Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Welcome to State Library. My name is Louise Denoon and my role at the State Library is as Executive Director, Public Libraries and Engagement. Um, so it's fantastic to be here for the second lecture um, in our partnership with the Grattan Institute, the State of Affairs lecture series. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather and pay respects to their ancestors who came before them. The location here on Kurilpa Point was historically a significant meeting, gathering and sharing place for Aboriginal people and we proudly continue that tradition um, here today and every day. I'd also like to acknowledge and welcome our event partner, the Grattan Institute. It's a truly fantastic partnership and we uh, value uh, the opportunity to bring people together four times a year to look at um, contemporary issues. I'd like to welcome our guest speakers here. Um, Adrian Pasarski, sorry, Adrian, was that right? Yep. Um, Executive Director of National Shelter Australia, uh, John Daly, the CEO of Grattan Institute, welcome. And fantastic to have Scott Stevens, the religion and ethics editor and co-host of The Minefield from ABC Radio and Television. Always um, a sort of shock to the system to see someone who's the voice that you listen to regularly on Radio National. So um, fantastic to, to have you here. So as all of you probably know, Grattan is a non-partisan think tank committed to providing um, and championing high-quality discussion to shape Australia's future. We've collaborated with them for a number of years and we continue that today. State Library is an inclusive and welcoming place for everyone, offering a safe place for open public discussion and debate on-site and online. Our mission is to inspire possibilities through knowledge, stories and creativity and encourage robust conversations and the sharing of diverse voices and opinions. Um, so tonight, our guests, with our guests, we're discussing the best way to help keep help low-income earners deal with the housing, you know, housing costs, and to reduce the number of Queenslanders who are um, experiencing homelessness. Um, certainly on a night like tonight where it's so cold for us um, in Brisbane anyway, um, the impact if you didn't have a home and the, the, what that would mean, um, it's even more evident. So tonight, um, this event is being live streamed. Hello to everyone on Facebook um, and on our website. If you're on that way inclined, you can join the conversation on Twitter using State of Affairs and tag SLQ and Grattan and National Shelter. So enough from me. I hope you feel welcomed here from the State Library. And um, over to you, Scott. Thank you so much, Louise. I actually thought you were going to say it's a shock to the system by the sheer extent of the boldness. <laughs> it's, um, and usually when there are spotlights, it kind of accentuates it. So everyone's, your vision levels are, everyone's comfortable? <laughs> Anti-glare? No. Uh, this is also being recorded for Big Ideas on Radio National, which means you'll be able to go back and relive tonight, uh, if you so choose, but it also means that if your phone rings during the conversation, it'll be recorded for all times, and, and I'll point out and I'll ask your name. So, so if you are using a phone tonight, if you would like to maybe switch that on to silent, uh, um, listeners 
present with us here, and listeners in coming weeks will be very, very grateful for it. This is a great topic, and I'm so glad you're here, because this is one of those topics, I think, that we find so many different issues and problems within our common life all get bundled up together. They tend to intersect and knot together around the issue of housing and homelessness. Uh, I'm not an economist. I'm not a policy person. Neither am I a social or union activist. My primary interest is in moral philosophy, uh, which is great because there are very few issues that are more central to moral philosophy than the notion of what is necessary for a life to flourish. So there are all sorts of wonderful uh, questions and topics and problems that all get bundled together in the issue of the ethics and politics of homelessness and housing. I'm really thrilled to have John and Adrian uh, here, and I don't know about you, but I'm hoping to learn and expecting, in fact, to learn a great deal tonight. So let's, let's try to begin. The way that I'm imagining our conversation will go is in terms of getting a full sense of the nature of the problem and then getting as clear as possible a sense about what the solution might, in fact, be. So uh, I can't think of two people who'd be better to talk about exactly this. Now, to get a sense of the problem, though, I worry, especially within modern news organizations, we get a lot of graphs, we get a lot of numbers, we get a lot of figures, or we get the human interest stories uh, that give the kind of the confronting sense about just what it is to sleep rough or families that are in dire situations following domestic violence. So I think it's really important that we get a very clear sense, what is it exactly that is the crisis of homelessness and housing unaffordability that we're faced with at the moment? What are the dimensions of that crisis? But I'm also wondering, how is it that we got here? Because this didn't just happen, and it's not the consequences, it's not the result of bad decisions of a particular government. This has been a bipartisan affair. So let's, let's get a sense first. When we talk about homelessness and housing unaffordability, do one of you want to give a, a kind of a clear, or maybe you'd like to take turns doing one and then the other. What do we mean by those two terms? So why don't I talk about housing affordability first or unaffordability, and then um, Adrian knows more than I do about homelessness, I suspect. Um, so we, housing affordability goes to all sorts of concepts. Um, my children can't afford to buy a home. Uh, I'm spending more and more of my income on rent. Um, uh, all of those kinds of issues. But I think that where we really care about it is particularly for those on low incomes. Um, roughly speaking, the, the place where we tend to focus is the bottom fifth of the population. Um, they've always spent a greater share of their income on housing. That's been true for a very long time. But what has happened is that they're spending more and more of their income on housing. And a very large number are now in what we call housing stress. In other words, the benchmarks vary, but often there's a benchmark, which is that they're spending more than 40% of their income on rent. And if you kind of think about, you know, so I've got, you know, low income, you've only got $300 a week coming in and you're going to spend 40% of that. So, you know, $120 on housing, that only leaves $180 for everything else. That's pretty tough. So there's, no, there's no give any family crisis, and it's not like families don't have crises. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're worried about. And, of course, what's implicit in that is that essentially rents have been going up faster than incomes. 
Uh, and that's left an increasing number of households, particularly those in capital cities, under ever-increasing levels of stress. And of course, one of the things that can happen is that one of those family events happens. Um, uh, you can't afford the rent. The landlord says, well, I'm really sorry, but kind of part of the deal here is that you pay the rent. If you can't pay the rent, I'm kicking you out. Uh, you can't afford to get anywhere else. And then you start to move into this area of homelessness. Before we get there, though, can I just pick you up on one thing, John? We've been talking for the better part of seven years now about widening inequality. Mm -hmm. And that usually, when we talk about that, we usually, that includes the... Uh, um, uh, owner, uh, capital ownership accumulating at one end of town rather than the other. It means wage increases stagnating for one particular percentile and then going up exponentially for another. It does strike me though that if how if rental has been if rental prices have been going up, especially for the bottom percentile, then that's going to exacerbate the experience or the, the lived experience, the inequality gap that we talk about elsewhere. Why do we not talk about inequality in terms of the effect that increased rental prices? Well, I think we should, and, and at Grattan we do. And I think actually the stylized fact is really that over the last 10 or 15 years, income inequality in Australia hasn't got that much worse. Lots of people say it, but you actually go and look at the numbers. Um, you know, the incomes of the top 20% have gone up slightly more than everybody else. But, you know, frankly, the differences are marginal. The mm. right way to look at it is over the last 15 years, pretty much all household incomes went up and they went up materially. Uh, and, and there's differences, but they're not major. But if you look at incomes after housing costs, you get a very different story, which is you get relatively little growth in income after housing costs for the bottom 20% and very substantial income growth um, after housing costs for the top 20% and a sort of nice sort of gradient in between the two. Um, that's actually been the real inequality in Australia is income after housing costs. The other thing where that, that's also played is um, whilst income inequality hasn't changed very much, wealth inequality has changed a lot. So people who already had a lot of wealth got a lot wealthier. People who didn't have very much didn't have didn't get much more and one of the major reasons for that is that um, is essentially around housing the people who already owned their own houses saw their wealth go up really fast people who are renting and had didn't own their own home by and large saw very little change in their wealth um, and unless you manage to get onto that property ladder and it's getting harder and harder particularly for young people and particularly for low-income young people mm. to own their own homes uh, that means that we're getting this increase in, in inequality of wealth, both within generations and between generations. And, and one of the kind of most dramatic ways to think about that is when I was leaving school, which is about 30-odd years ago, um, uh, and you looked at 25 to 34-year-old households, um, about, two th about three in five owned their own home. And that was true no matter how much they earned. It was true for high-income households. It was true for low-income households. Three in five own their own home. Now, if we roll the clock forward to a, a time when my children are more or less just have just left school, totally different world. It's if you're if they were if they're lucky enough to be high income, then it's still true that about three in five of them will own their own home. But if they wind up being low income, 25 to 34 year olds, 
only one in five will own their own home. Now, home ownership isn't the only thing we care about in this debate, but it's certainly something that plenty of people value for reasons that are pretty obvious. And, and when we've essentially locked low-income young people out of the housing market, that is also a problem. Uh, and, and that's, I think, one of the dimensions of housing affordability we do have to think about. Mm. And we really need to look at the whole housing system to make sense of this, especially when we get to homelessness. If we don't understand the interconnectedness of all of the elements of the housing system, we're not going to understand what happens at that end that we really most care about. So you've described home ownership and the change in that quite well. The change in the rental market, I think, has also been more dramatic than we've suggested so far. So we produce a, a rental affordability index. Um, it measures and compares the incomes of renters against the rents that they pay. And it looks at that in specific locations right across Australia. And we look at it particularly around capital cities. And what that shows is that even up to average incomes in Australia, uh, people are on the threshold of rental affordability. So when we talk about rental affordability in that sense, and you're right to, dis to draw the distinction as well between um, what's an affordable house, which is a relative concept, to, um, housing, to, to affordable housing, which we'll get to later, which is a different kind of That's definition. Right. But we've been stretching the inequality into the rental system far greater. So even up into middle-income Australia, people are starting to come up against the threshold of what's an affordable rent. And the further down the income scale that you come, the less likely you are to get rental housing. So what happens is in the rental markets of Australia, people get displaced. Higher-income people try and save a deposit to get into home ownership. They rent down and they displace the next group, mm. so on and so forth. So it's like a big dominoes or a big almost musical chairs that we've got in Australia because we don't have enough housing supply at the bottom of all of this. So in a game of musical chairs, you know what happens when the music stops. There's not enough chairs and somebody misses out. That's homelessness. By and large, that's the reason that we've got homelessness in Australia. Which does beg the question, so how does this happen? And the answer, in short, is we have pretty rapid population growth, particularly in our capital cities, um, partly as a result of natural population growth. Essentially, fewer people are dying than are being born. And, and very substantially, particularly since about 2006, because we've had extremely high levels of migration, net migration. And that's fine so long as you build enough housing relative to that population growth. And in all of our major capital cities, so including Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, um, we've, for a significant period of time, for essentially most of that decade between about 2005 and 2015, we had um, fewer house, uh, dwellings being built than we were seeing in terms of population growth. And of course, when that happens, and there's not enough housing to go around, as, as Adrian says, you know, the music stops. But kind of inherently, the people who wind up without a chair are the people with the lowest incomes. Because people are, by and large, prepared to do pretty much anything to ensure, pay pretty much anything to ensure they've got a home. And so if they can afford it, they will. So if you've got $500 a week in income, you can afford to pay more than someone who's got $300 a week. So you will probably wind up with a dwelling. 
someone who's 300, it's going to be marginal, and someone who's got 200, they're the ones who wind up without a chair when the music stops. Mm. And, and why do we not build enough housing? Short answer, because um, essentially we have planning regulations that make it really hard to subdivide. Uh, and uh, everybody agrees that we need more housing so long as it's in the suburb next to theirs. Uh, and, you know, that's the root cause of a lot of this, is that everybody says, yeah, yeah, but just not next to me. Mm. Uh, and we have um, legal regimes in terms of our planning systems uh, that one way or another typically make it quite <laughs> difficult to subdivide, particularly in our major cities, particularly in the places where people want to live that are not right on the edge. Um, and, and interestingly, when you look at the precise regulations that achieve that in, in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane, they're actually quite different, but they all have exactly the same effect, which is don't subdivide the block next to me. And in most of the cities, there's a problem at the other end of the spectrum, which is it's also difficult to consolidate and get the density that you need, in the, particularly in middle ring suburbs or that middle suburban area where we, we, we could so benefit from density. But the other specific problem that I think has to be mentioned is, is the underinvestment in public housing, mm. social housing, affordable housing by governments because they're the only ones really who are going to do it. Well, this is the thing that I wanted us to come to next because it's not just laws of economics here. It's not just about too much demand and too little supply. There are also historical and social and political trends that have finally come up, uh, caught up with us now after the better part of four decades. So there were huge public housing building projects, for instance, in the two decades following the Second World War. There was a tremendous investment in the social architecture that was necessary for people to be able to live prosperously, communally, and well. But there was also a particular idea of the social contract, and here's where I want to plug a little bit of moral or, or political philosophy into this, that I fear we've lost. A fundamental idea of the social contract, going right back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, is that part of the bargain that we make for one another, with one another within a particular society is that we refuse to profit at the expense of the immiseration of another. That's part of the bargain that we make. If me having more means not just you have less, but you are immiserated, that's something I simply refuse to do as a matter of principle, as a matter of the bargain that we've made. Now, part of this story that we've been telling is a story as well of investment in houses. So it's not just generational wealth being passed on from parents to children and so forth. It's also houses becoming a form of commodity through which people invest and out of which they want to make money. So you've got that great historical, social, political trend, and at the same time, you've got the three decades long atrophying or neglect of the building programs of public housing. So these, it seems to me, are two huge factors of the story that we aren't quite talking about yet. I think I'd have a slightly different take on that history. So yes, it's true that government built a lot of housing in the 50s and 60s, uh, but by and large, it built that housing effectively at you know, and sold it off at commercial rates. Um, so it sold it to middle-income earners, and government did that because basically other people weren't building it. In the same way that government in the 50s and 60s owned telecommunications companies and airlines and banks and insurers because 
a lot of these things, for whatever reason, markets didn't provide very well and we regulated them like crazy and so the only way you wound up with anything was when governments did it. Now, I think one of the successes of government over the last 20 or 30 years was to realise, you know, there's a bunch of things that we, the government, have been doing that we don't need to do and that, by and large, the private sector will provide perfectly well. So the private sector's turned out to be very good at running airlines and very good, by and large, at running banks, certainly better than government was at running banks. You know, everyone kind of says, you know, haven't the banks done badly? It is worth remembering just exactly what happened to the state government, State Bank of Victoria, you know, when governments were running banks, um, uh, insurers uh, and developers. And when you ask outside of a couple of very high-profile problems in Sydney at the moment, which is another story we can maybe talk about another time. Mm. You know, by and large, the private sector has done a perfectly good job of building housing. Um, and, you know, basically they buy land and they develop it and they sell it off and they make a profit in the process. And, and then when you ask, so why don't you build more of it? The answer is not because they don't want to. The answer is not because somehow they're hoarding it and hoping to make a higher profit. Because, you know, given the number of players in the development industry, I don't actually think that's a plausible story. But I think what it does explain it is there's just a shortage of things that they can develop in places where people want to live. Um, so I'm not so sure that the problem is that government got out of the business of building housing in general. I mean, you know, the overall story is that the private sector has built a huge amount of housing. That... But but what it, what it has stopped doing quite so much is... We used to have government own and um, other not-for-profits own about 6% of the housing stock that was one way or another effectively subsidised, and that's drifted down to be now only about 5% of the housing stock. But it's worth putting that in context. Not a it's huge... It's 4%, isn't it? It's, 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 it's about 48 across the country. In Victoria, it's down to 28 It's got the lowest level of social housing of anywhere... Um, Queensland, it's about 3.56, somewhere around that. Um, some jurisdictions have higher levels. South Australia once had 11% of all of its housing was some form of social housing, but that was due to massive government investment in worker housing to bring to That's bring right. workers into That's the right. manufacturing industry there. So there have also been all sorts of reasons why governments have worked with the private sector to get the specific housing that they wanted. But the point that I wanted to make about the social housing system going backwards is that it was a much broader system than it is now. It was a system that had workers in it. It was effectively an alternative to home ownership for working people um, so that you would pay up to market rent to live in social housing and you would pay less as your, as your means and need um, meant that you could. What we've lost, I think, over the last 30 years, since we've been only targeting social housing to the highest needs, lowest income people, is that mix in the social housing system. And it's also undermined its economic viability because there was, um, whether you call it cross-subsidy or economic viability within that system, there was economic viability. When you're only targeting housing to the lowest income, highest needs people, you're doing two things. One, you're robbing the system of rent, of money, and two, you're concentrating disadvantage in particular places and particular complexes. Both of those things have had negative consequences for our social housing system. So for me, the, the, the part of the solution is to 
build uh, an affordable housing system for want of a better term because the language around this is, is actually quite shocking overall and something that we should address and fix. Um, but we need to build a broader system of affordable housing that has social housing within it but which has a range of housing options so that we return it to a system that has a broader mix of people, that has a greater viability, that can sustain itself both economically and socially. Mm. Before we go any further, I want to put something to the two of you that I'm quite sure would not have been put to either of you in other forums. I'm wondering if you could both give us some kind of statement to begin with. So what? Why? I mean, we know what the degradation, the the lack, the loss of stable housing. We know what that looks like in acute cases. What's the social, the civic, perhaps even the moral importance of having housing, of having a place to call one's home over time? I'll just start by saying that housing underpins every other activity. If you don't have adequate, decent housing that enables you to live with dignity, you can't engage in employment, you can't engage in education, your health will not be as it should be, um, you can't socially or, or uh, culturally engage properly without adequate housing. So for all of those reasons, housing is fundamentally important and worth doing. We are all um, diminished by any of us being homeless. John? Well, I think you can think about this in two ways. You can think about it in a sort of Maslow hierarchy of needs. You know, housing is always considered completely basic, sort of along with food and, and other completely basic needs. But I think there's also a really strong emotional dimension to this. Notice this is, we don't call this housinglessness. We call it homelessness. Because actually when you think about that word home, there's all of this emotional things bound up in it. You know, our home is an incredibly intrinsic part of our identity. Hmm. Um, when I don't have a place that I can call home, um, you know, it's you live a very different life. And and for a, you know, it's not true for absolutely everyone, but, but a, the vast majority of people want a place that they can call home, a base in which they feel safe. Um, a place where they keep the things and that are most dear to them, the place where the people who are most dear to them live as well. And so I think when people don't have housing, inherently they struggle to have all of those things that are bound up in that idea of home. One of the reasons that I raise this is my next question, which is, I mean, there have been movements over the last two decades that have wanted housing elevated to the level of a universal human right. It's something that is fundamental to our ability to live and to live well. I'm not quite so sure about that. I just think there are all sorts of very complex things that follow. But it does seem unavoid unavoidable, undoubtable to me, that housing is crucial if one takes, say, the capabilities approach within moral... In other words, housing is something that is so vital that everything else that follows that is good in our ability to live together and to live well must follow then from the stability, from the emotional connection that one gets from home. So this is why the reason I'm raising all this is that 
the real emotions that get stirred up in this debate about housing affordability then really tend to flare when things like negative gearing or falling house prices, anything, in other words, that begins to touch upon our, well, let's just call it straight, a certain degree of accumulated wealth. So how is it that in this broader policy debate, this more emotional or even this more principled dimension in the way that we think about housing, I guess what I'm really trying to ask is, is it appropriate to think about housing as something that one should profit from? Is it appropriate to talk about houses as a form of investment and a means by which one can profitably make gain? Well, I think that that rapidly goes to a really fundamental question, which is um, not about what are we trying to achieve, but how are we trying to achieve it? Because I think it's, it's for example, um, even more than, than housing, Food is an incredibly basic human right. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that we're now going to um, nationalise all of the forms of production of food. Indeed, one of the things we have learnt from Stalinist Russia is that when you nationalise the production of food, it doesn't necessarily maximise the production of food that you want. <laughs> um, and so I think the same is true of housing. Um, you look, sure, you can nationalise all of this if you really want to, um, and uh, government can build all of the housing, but I can. my guess is you will wind up with something that looks like Soviet Russian housing um, and not necessarily enough of it. And, you know, relative to where we are in Australia, that doesn't strike me as a great alternative. So I think it's, I think it's a mistake to go straight from such and such is a basic human right to therefore government should own it, build it, supply it. Now, government absolutely is responsible for setting up the rules of the game and occasionally for looking after the people at the bottom and for doing a number of other things to make sure that we've got the best chance possible for as many people as possible to have as good a housing as we can. Um, bearing in mind that government is an imperfect instrument. Uh, and, you know, the reality is even if we were running this perfectly, chances are we would still have some... Homelessness, that doesn't mean that we should then throw the whole system up in the air. It just means that we should try yet again to do a bit better than we're doing today. So, you know, I think we're, we're doing, we are not doing well. We are not doing as well as we have done in the past. We're not doing terribly and we can do a lot better. But I don't think we have to nationalise the entire exercise to do better. No, and housing actually is a human right it's embedded in the economic social and cultural mm, rights right. that we are a signatory to so we have obligations under that although funnily enough it's the commonwealth that signs up to these things but the states that have the obligations so there's something missing in our arrangements um, in, in Australia um, but nonetheless we have a massive industry that is based on making money out of housing you know, it's a, there is a huge industry that makes money out of housing. So I, I think it would be twee to say that it's, it's inappropriate to have any commodification of housing because it exists. And, and you know, over a million, 1.4 million Australians negatively gear, for example. So there's a lot of people invested in, in making money. But it's the extent to which we do that that I think raises a moral and ethical question and also uh, uh, the extent that, uh, that we do that means 
has consequences for who becomes homeless or, or how people become homeless or, or if there is sufficient housing. So just to take one part of that, I mean, the, the Labor Party proposed changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax, right? And I think we have to talk about both of those things rather than just the one of them. Negative gearing's been around in some form, I think, since 1840. I think it popped up in Tasmania originally and we've had it um, ever since in some shape or form. Where it got uh, problematic was, in, was after 1999 when, when, when the Howard government, um, after the, the Ralph tax review, the business tax review, funnily enough, um, changed the rules um, and gave uh, a 50% discount on capital gains to investors. That has what has drawn investors into housing and commodified that type of housing. But there's an even bigger tax issue, really, which is that we have no tax on the family home. There is no capital gains tax on the family home. So our tax system does set up um, behavioural issues for us as a society. We overinvest, arguably, in our, all of our family homes. We build homes that are much larger than they actually need to be um, at much higher values and we overinvest in them, largely because it's a tax haven. And we, we are driven that way. But, but I think we need to understand where this plays into homelessness. Um, and I would argue that, that all of those things have problems. Um, they, without doubt, wind up in increasing wealth inequality. Basically, they mean that those who are already wealthy get wealthier than they would be otherwise. But they don't necessarily affect homelessness. Um, in fact, I think one of the, the big mistakes in the kind of debate about negative gearing capital gains tax, everyone says, oh, if we, if we do this, we're going to fundamentally change the rental market, which my answer is, no, 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 you're not going to actually change anything much about the rental market. It's likely that the effect of changing the rules on negative gearing and capital gains tax will be that rents will stay exactly where they are at the moment. It's the most likely outcome. Um, uh, so it's not really affecting the housing affordability and particularly homelessness. It is affecting wealth distribution and that's, you know, an issue and there's plenty of other reasons that we've written about elsewhere around the problems with negative gearing and capital gains tax. But I don't think that, that they are the root cause of homelessness. I think that, that that is much more around these kind of planning issues that we've spoken about. And then I think we do need to talk about government provision, particularly for those right at the bottom. I mean, we've been throwing these terms around and I think it might be helpful just to define mm. them quickly. Um, typically, the way that we define this is um, uh, affordable housing is essentially housing, roughly speaking, for the bottom 20% that one way or another is subsidised by government. Um, often, it's subsidised in a way such that you pay some percentage, uh, you get some kind of discount off the market rent. Um, then we have social housing, typically aimed, roughly speaking, at the bottom 5% of income earners. Typically, those are people who are either, without that, would either be homeless or pretty close to it. Um, uh, and typically, the way that that is priced is that you only pay a percentage of your income, which for a lot of the people in that bottom 5% will essentially be new start or something pretty close to it. Um, so... Um, I would argue, in terms of that market that I was talking about earlier, you know, and, and this is a question not about what we're trying to achieve, but how we achieve it, the market, by and large, does provide housing in general, private rental, to people in the bottom 20%. And we know that's true because, as I said, across the country, only about 6% of households are in some kind of affordable housing. So that means that 14% of those in the bottom 20% 
are in private rentals. So but, the, the but market. Many of them are in housing stress. Many of them in housing stress. But the bottom line is the private market is providing them with, with, with the housing that they are living in. The bottom 5%, those who are much more in social housing, um, many of them, the private market might well never provide for them. Because if you look at people who are right down the bottom of the income distribution, um, often in and out of housing, um, very disproportionately they have both physical and mental health problems. Um, uh, very disproportionately they often have drug and alcohol problems. And many landlords will say, I would rather leave my property vacant than rent to someone with those kinds of characteristics. And, and that's not completely crazy from the point of view of the private land. The private rental, yeah. The catch is that from a societal point of view, that means that that person has no home. Mm. And that's an outcome we're all pretty uncomfortable with for very obvious reasons. Um, it's, not an, you know, it's, it's not an ethically defensible position. And so I think there is a true market failure at that point. Yeah. And government is there, amongst other things, to solve market failure problems. If the private market is just never going to provide um, a, a rental accommodation to that group of people, then it is incredibly important that government provides it. And I think underneath it all, that has always been the rationale for government provision of social housing. That if we do not do this, many of these people will wind up homeless. They will then have very difficult lives for all of the kind of social reasons. See, I've got about. a slightly different take on that. I think, I think that, as I said, this, the, the public housing system in Australia started out as an alternative to home ownership for working people. It has drifted into a welfare housing system. It, it, it has, well, it hasn't drifted there. It's been targeting that over time. So ever since we had Friedmanite economics come into the Western Hemisphere and Thatcher and, and, and Reagan got together and, and said that you can only spend taxpayers' money on those people who truly deserve it, and that is um, and ill-defined, and I think that's a, a, you know, the deserving and undeserving aspects of this are, are quite interesting. Well, and but you see, I would think about it as needed. I, I absolutely agree with you. The concept of deserving in this context is very, very problematic. But I think arguing that you're doing it because they need it because there's otherwise a market failure is a much more defensible way of putting that position. True, <laughs> but, but sorry. <laughs> there is another part of that that I think really needs to be raised, which is not even desert or need, but one of the substantial commitments that undergirt previous programs of social housing was the notion of, for want of a better term, moral luck, that sometimes bad stuff happens. And it's not because we were bad, or it's not because we did something that was unconscionable, or it's not because of a series of bad consumer decisions or whatever. Sometimes bad stuff happens and various forms of social insurance exist in order to make sure that when bad stuff overtakes us, there are ways for society to look after itself. It was that notion of moral luck that you find being targeted very, very specifically from 1974 onwards. I mean, very, very specifically, you can actually plot it so that it's then that the notion of desert and the idea of then luck, which was sacrificed as a result, and therefore the various forms of social insurance uh, that we all contribute into, those were the things that were then substantially targeted. In other words, it was the introduction of morality into the very notion of, of, of who belongs 
within, within uh, civic society uh, and who's right on the edges, who is then marginalized. Uh, that was catastrophic, I think, in the, in, in the late 70s. So if anything, we need to get back, I think, to this idea that catastrophe sometimes just overtakes people. Not just catastrophe either, I think. I, th- I, I, I think we have to accept that, by and large, we live in a capitalist world, but one of the consequences of, of capitalism itself are that people miss out. There aren't opportunities equally distributed to everybody. People miss out. And therefore, we have a collective responsibility mm. to look after people who miss out. Now, that means... And, and one of the things that we have to understand about homelessness is that mostly it is short-term and episodic. It isn't uh, a description of a particular set of people in our society. Um, I try and always use the terms people who experience homelessness rather than homeless people Mm. because of that precise reason. And I think, therefore, we do have a collective responsibility to provide a level of housing such that we've got a genuine safety net so that if you need it for all sorts of reasons, that it's there and available to you. And this is what we've lost. We don't have a sufficient safety net anymore. And that safety net has to be broader than just the highest need, lowest income people. So I'm very... Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I'm very, very eager for us to get on to some of the solutions to this. (laughs) We've remarkably, I think, admirably admirably steered clear of percentages and figures, but I think it's at this point that figures might help us. So we talked before about roughly a 2% of total houses decline in the provision of social housing. So roughly from six, seven percent to roughly, say, four, five percent. How many houses does that represent? What are we talking about? About 400,000 properties across Australia is what we've got in a social housing system. Yeah, and and so that difference of two percent is roughly speaking about an extra 200,000 dwellings of some kind. So that's the scale of the problem that we're talking about to move from where we are now to where we were then. But I think all of that begs the question about not what are we trying to do here, but how do we do it? And, of course, that's the art of public policy. Mm. Um, Often we we don't really disagree that much about what we're trying to do, but we disagree a lot about what's the best way of getting there. So I think one of the places that Adrian and I respectfully disagree quite a lot is... um, Uh, I think that there is nothing wrong with the notion of government saying resources are scarce. We are going to to target government resources um, towards those who really need it most. Um, And now that includes people who are in and out of homelessness such that we help them when they need it and don't help them so much when they don't need it. It includes people who have endured the vicissitudes of life, who've been unlucky, and, you know, victims of domestic violence this week or, you know, lost their job and, you know, lost this and lost everything the week before. Um, absolutely, they are some of the people that we need to help and for whom public provision, government provision, or at least government-funded provision of their housing may be the only responsible course. The much, much more difficult question from a both government perspective and, to some extent, an ethical perspective, is given that we are trying to do that, 
given that we are really trying to look after these people who would otherwise be homeless or pretty close to it, either long-term or short-term, to what extent should we, as governments, also subsidise specifically the housing of you know, people who are not in such extreme circumstances by funding their housing itself? Because we have other mechanisms. So we do, by and large, provide... Um, uh, welfare pay payments to many of the people in the bottom 20%, so general income support. We do provide, almost certainly inadequate, rental assistance to people who are in that group and who are renting. Um, so we, you know, there are other mechanisms, not least just basically paying them money and, and they are free to use that as they choose and many of them use, choose to use it to, to pay the rent. Um, uh, we also have the option for government to directly subsidise their housing, what we tend to call affordable housing, and I'm not so sure that that's the right policy response to that because I'm worried it's not a very efficient use of government money um, because, by definition, most of the people in that category will, in fact, be in private rental, and if we were worried about them, it makes more sense to me to essentially increase those welfare payments generally rather than to subsidise the housing of some of them uh, in a way which is often worth way more than we give them in, in uh, uh, social security payments and which therefore to some extent amounts to a lottery that says some of, this, of the people in this bottom 20% will wind up with a lot more support from government than others for reasons that are not particularly rational. One of the beauties of a social security welfare system is that you can actually do it in such a way that it is reasonably equitable between those in the bottom 20% where we are essentially providing money according to needs. Now, there are very substantial arguments that, for example, New Start is just nothing like enough, and I subscribe to that view mm. as well, mm. um, but that's a different kind of problem. So there are two sides to this. One is the income side. If we can lift income sufficiently at the bottom end, then, you know, okay, maybe we don't need to do more than that. But the brute fact is that most of the people in poverty and in housing stress in Australia are in the private rental market. The private rental market is an example, I'd say, of market failure, where we just do not have sufficient supply of affordable rental housing in the private sector. So the question for me is, do we need to engineer a specific supply? It's not just about general supply. I mean, you've argued long about general supply, and if we can increase general supply, enough of that filters down so that we've got adequate supply everywhere. I think, though, that we really need to attack it from both ends, so we do need to increase general supply, but we actually need to increase specific supply of affordable rental housing for the bottom and a bit more, right? So it's not just the bottom. It has to be a broader system to allow for the vicissitudes of the system. You cannot perfectly target um, housing only to those ne who need it and, and do the job, I would argue. You actually need a broader system. And I think the other trend that we've never really uh, properly talked about is who provides it and um, 
should it be government? So government should certainly provide the subsidy or the, the, the support, the, the financial backing for it, but increasingly it is being provided by the community housing sector. Um, New South Wales is the greatest example of that where they are transferring quite large tranches of the public housing system across to the community housing sector to grow, hopefully, a broader affordable housing system. That's not really happening because the, the finances of a state government look exactly the same as the finances of a community housing provider. And if you've only got a certain amount of money, funnily enough, you can't actually grow it. Um, so you do need something more. And it's what more and how you do that that we've always had a yeah. disagreement about. Yeah, and I guess one of the reasons that I'm reasonably confident about private provision is that you were talking earlier about the sort of dominoes. I mean, it is inherently true must be true that if I've got um, 40 houses and 50 people that need housing and I build one more house, even if it's a really high-end house that the most you know, wealthiest of us moves into, by definition they move out of something and by definition at the end of the day there's one more home which will go to the person, one of the people in the bottom 10 who didn't have a home yesterday. And that, that kind of must be true as a matter of you know, basic mathematical logic. Except for what you said before, is if they don't like the characteristics of the occupant and they choose not to and they allow choose to leave to it occupy. vacant. I, absolutely, that's true, but, but I note that that is not, in general, the problem for the bottom 20%. You know, the bottom 20%, by and large, there's lots of landlords happy to rent to them. It is true for some of the people in the bottom 5%, but, but you know, that's about being really clear about which problem are we trying to solve. So that's why I'm maybe a little bit more relaxed than you about the ability of the private sector to provide housing ultimately for people in the bottom 20%. Because it doesn't matter who they build it for, every time they create an extra dwelling, by definition, they're ultimately creating an extra dwelling at the bottom. Um, so I think that that's how that one plays. In terms of the public provision, I would suggest government is only actually increasing the supply of housing if the subsidies it provides for affordable housing, public housing, through community housing providers, whatever it might be, increases the number of homes relative to what would have been built anyway. So if, for example, it's built on land that government owns and which is otherwise going to stay vacant, that's clearly true. If it's built on church land that you know, otherwise would stay vacant and that as a, you know, because of this system... Uh, a particular church is happy to make available to be developed for this particular purpose, then that obviously adds to total supply. But many times, all we're talking about is, frankly, a piece of land that was always going to get developed. Uh, and if anything, the fact that it's going to have some public or, or affordable housing on it makes it harder rather than easier to get a planning permission. Um, and so often, the stuff that is being built as affordable housing doesn't add to the total stock of housing relative to what would have happened anyway. But the corollary to that is that it might be occupied by people who wouldn't have otherwise occupied a house because their characteristics are such that it wouldn't have been rented to them. Only if they are in that very bottom group at 5% where the landlord wouldn't have liked them because... Otherwise, and I'm not suggesting that everybody in the bottom 5% is like that, I'm not suggesting that every landlord is like that, but we've got to be honest that that is a real thing that happens in the world. But otherwise, by definition, they're coming out of that you know, chunk that currently 
can't afford housing. And by definition, every time I build an extra dwelling somewhere, someone out of that group is getting a home tomorrow that they didn't have yesterday. Because if I've created, if I put one extra chair into the game of musical chairs, by definition, someone who yesterday wound up not being able to sit down can Look, now I, sit down. I, I, I don't dispute the logic, but, but, but it just doesn't seem to work in reality. So we have had um, quite large additions to supply in Australia over the last three to five years relative to the period before it. Right? So we, were, we have been building at about the rate to um, keep up with population growth for a period of time, but not over a long yeah. period of time. So, so for, you're right. We've more or less kept pace with population growth in our major cities for about two years. Yeah. But we've got an accumulated problem from the previous That's 15, right. and there's this kind of enormous overhang. So, you know, it doesn't look to me that, that homelessness has got a lot, or, or more to the point, housing stress has got a lot worse. In fact, you can see the last year or two, it's actually got slightly better. Um, you know, marginal. it's marginal, but it certainly stopped getting worse, whereas for the last 10 years, it's clearly been getting a lot worse. So, you know, I say actually, this is evidence that exactly my description is the right one. If you don't build enough housing relative to population growth, you wind up with more people without chairs. Through that period we're talking about, we also added 20,000 properties to the social housing system through the stimulus program of the Rudd um, government. We also added 35,000 properties to the... To uh, who were, you know, you'll argue that they would have been built anyway, but they were occupied by um, people with specific characteristics that fitted the, the National Rental Affordability Scheme. Um, so we have been adding specific supply as well. And I think we've got a, a, a dispute really about, um, I mean, I don't think we're, we're, we're disputing overall, but I think we do need a specific supply of affordable housing for a broader category of people than only the most desperate, if you know what I mean. You know the most wonderful thing about this? <laughs> it's like I've just walked into a conversation that's been going for about three years. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not far wrong. <laughs> it seems to me, Adrian, that one of the reasons, and I want to come to questions from you in just a moment, one of the reasons for that is to destigmatize social yes. housing. Yes, exactly. Um, we have so residualized social housing that the only people who get in it are often quite severely traumatized and have um, significant personal issues, right? And it doesn't make them often the easiest neighbors to live with or beside or below or above, so on and so forth. So we get a neighbour fatigue. I mean, typical in social housing developments over time has been a, a, a real level of social interaction and support that's provided within the social housing complex. That is now really breaking down because of the over-concentration of disadvantage that we've got in them. So we really need to... to, to and that means that it becomes more stigmatised, which means that nobody wants to live next to it, nobody wants it built next to them. You know, I mean, there's a funny thing in Queensland. We, we, we're all familiar with nimbyism everywhere, but in Queensland we call it bananaism. So, which is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that this is another one where I actually, I completely agree 
with the need to avoid stigmatisation. But where I don't agree is about what's the right way to deal with that. So you're going to have a number of dwellings which are for people right towards the bottom. The question is, how many people do you have like that all together before you get a floor, a building, whatever it might be, of people who are not in that situation? And I think that there is an enormous value in designing this consciously. And to be fair to Queensland, it's done better than many in terms of actually designing it this way. So you say you will literally have a floor of a building that will have people from who you know need social housing but the floor above and the floor below will be quite different. And then we hope that we, you know, it's close enough that we do actually get a community going between all three of those floors. Now, the question is, and I think this is where Adrian and I disagree, is Adrian says, I want the floor above to be affordable housing where there's some subsidy for the government to live in it. And I say, no, no, I think that that floor should simply be private rental, rented out at the going right rent. If that's a little bit less because it's right next door, you know, that's the way it is, but have it going at full-blown full, full blown market rent. And the reason for that is that government money is scarce and I'd rather than subsidising the people who live on the floor above somewhat, I would rather have more money so that I can go and essentially subsidise a floor in a completely different building for more people right at the bottom. Because what really worries me is that at the moment... Oh there's a lot of people who really are in that bottom 5%, who really are homeless or pretty close to it, who literally have nothing because they can't afford it and there isn't enough that is subsidised by government sufficiently that they can afford it. And there's just not enough of it to go around. And you're right, government money is scarce. Right? Money is scarce. Government money in particular is scarce, which is why we shouldn't be subsidising landlords to have second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth properties. Mm. We don't necessarily need... 12 submarines. There's a whole range I of agree. choices that governments that. <laughs> can make to allow a bit of subsidy into an affordable housing system so that we get a much more equi equitable distribution of housing across the board and much happier communities as a result and we can end homelessness as well. But this actually touches on one of the great myths of modern Australian politics, which is that the government can make decisions that leaves nobody worse off. How do we reintroduce the language of, can we reintroduce the language of sacrifice into the public policy debate, John? I, I think that introducing the language of sacrifice is always going to be tricky. <laughs> but I think we can introduce the language of trade-off. That yes, there will be winners and there will be losers, but overall... Most people will be in a better position than they are today, and that includes the fact that most people aren't homeless now, but you never know what's going to be happening to you tomorrow. You never know where you're going to be unlucky. Um, so I think we can. One of the really interesting things about the last election is that it got seen as a... The ALP's policies were seen as a kind of attack on the big end of town. Ironically, and, you know, and it's true, on any view of life, those on higher incomes were going to be on a worse wicket under an ALP government than where they are at the moment. Ironically, the only group that kind of consistently appears to have swung towards the ALP were those on high incomes. Ironically, because I think they understood, look, you know, this has kind of got a bit too far and we need something that's, you know, essentially distributes resources in a way that we're a bit more comfortable with overall, including, 
You can give gearing and capital gains tax and franking credits and all the rest of it. Um, uh, now, that's not true of everyone on high incomes, but it's certainly true, you know, across the community. It was actually one of the great ironies of the election we've just mm -hmm. had. And I think we could reintroduce concepts like social wage or common good. Hmm. Um, these were, you know, social wage was quite a common term through the Keating and, and, and Hawke period of time where, um, you know, the, the notion of the, the accord that we had with the unions where unions forewent wage rises, um, even to develop a superannuation system and other uh, common good outcomes, I think was highly successful and worked. And I think we can do that. But I think it takes a situation where uh, all sides start playing that game. Because when one side is happy to be divisive and the others aren't, I think it's much more difficult to achieve that. So I think there's something about the people demanding that that has to happen as well. Politicians aren't really leaders anymore, they're followers. Um, you know, and we need the people to be the leaders and the politicians will follow. Sounds about right. We have time for questions. What's happening with microphones? There's a roving mic and a roving mic. They have two roving mics. If you have, let's go ahead here. I'll just ask you to keep your question or your comment nice and short and pointed, and that way we can get through as many as we can. Early in the discussion tonight, there was a discussion of some of the things that can be done by different jurisdictions, such as you know zoning laws, those sorts of things. Um, can you point to any jurisdictions around Australia uh, which are being successful in that regard, uh, which are best practice in that regard, and is there evidence of having an impact on homelessness? Um, uh, well, ironically, about the only jurisdiction in the country over about the last couple of decades that has decided to bring in a planning policy that would materially increase housing, not right at the edge of the city, um, but towards the middle or the centre. Lots of people have written planning policies that said that. What was unusual this time is that they were actually very specific about how the rules would be changed such that that would happen. They did actually change the rules and then it did actually result in a substantial increase in housing. Uh, exactly as the plan had said, rather than, you know, what Victoria tends to do is it says all of that and then, in fact, almost all the housing got built for a long time on the edge. Brisbane City Council consciously said we're going to build a lot more housing, we are going to essentially um, change the planning rules so that you can, it's much easier to build 10 to 20 storey apartments about a kilometre and a half outside of the CBD, not very far from where we are here, um, South Bank uh, in Brisbane. Uh, and then that is exactly what happened. And Brisbane went from building almost no apartments in substantial developments to about 5,000 a year, which in the scheme of Brisbane's population growth is very material. And the effect of that was that for quite a long period of time, the, the price of um, uh, Brisbane apartments uh, held steady in nominal terms, which of course meant that it fell in real terms, and rents fell effectively as well. And as far as I'm aware, it's about the only example where that was a piece of conscious planning policy that was then actually executed. And you can see it. Uh, Brisbane house prices have continued to go up. 
um, whereas Brisbane apartment prices have, have tended to fall. Now, where so that's a success for Brisbane. Where Brisbane could do a lot better is that that's terrific for the kind of one and a half, two kilometre ring around the centre of Brisbane. But Brisbane has then effectively locked up almost all of the rest of Brisbane on the basis that it has incredible heritage value as timber and tin uh, and, um, uh, and Queenslanders. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I think that Queenslanders are a lovely building style, but it's far from obvious for me to me that you need as many of them as you do. And, of course, when you say you're not allowed to change it, effectively that means that site is un unavailable for redevelopment and... and or increased density. And of course, what's particularly crazy about it is that Queenslanders were really, really well designed in 1920 to deal with the Queensland climate. Really hot, pretty sticky for a large number of months of the year. In 2019, when air conditioners are ubiquitous, they are really, really badly designed. Because the whole point about the design of a Queenslander was to maximise airflow uh, and minimise insulation. And they, were really, they did really well at that. But of course, as soon as you try and air condition them, they're incredibly expensive to run. So great design in, in 1920, very bad design in 2020. And yet we have, through um, essentially planning laws in Brisbane, frozen most of that in aspic. I think it's a failure of energy policy. It's a failure of housing policy. There's a couple of other examples to point to that use inclusionary zoning, which is, is, is a policy that, that is gaining momentum, particularly in Sydney, um, if less so elsewhere. Um, but in Sydney, there have been some good developments done through inclusionary zoning. City West, as an organisation, is the beneficiary of those, where the Ultimo Piemont site has um, determined that a proportion of all of the housing there has to be affordable and the beneficiary of that is City West Housing and they've been adding to the stock of affordable housing in that inner city area ever since. Brisbane Housing Company um, is, a, is a different, it doesn't have the same uh, attached planning laws but um, is a different version. And South Australia has had some inclusionary zoning provisions which uh, nominally say that 15% uh, of new developments should be affordable and, and one-third of that should be social housing. That's been less successful, um, but it has had some success in South Australia. So I think we can look more to those sorts of um, planning decisions in the future as well to make sure that whatever we do with our planning system, a certain proportion of it is built for social and affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And then next, just at the front here. Uh, just one point that just one point that might need um, consideration over time is that even if we increase the amount of housing and people move in, and as John said, you know, people move in and out. One thing that has been noted through a lot of um, research is that quite often uh, the people less able to afford housing end up in the most uh, least desirable places, which often the places which are also dealing with problems around urban heat and other problems. And as our climate changes and we increase in heat, we're going to find a lot of those people that are sitting down in that bottom percentages are going to possibly, if we don't do it right, also end up suffering from these impacts of climate change. So I think that we need to be conscious that while we're put giving accommodation for people and helping that some of these places that exist might need to be made better than they are at the moment to cope with the changes that we're going to have to deal with 
in the next uh, rest of the century. And people tend to get pushed to the fringes of the city as well, where there are fewer opportunities, um, economic and otherwise, as well. So we do need some... Less access to services as yeah, well. Yeah, all of that. So we do need some engineering to make sure that, that lower-income people can live everywhere, not just, you know, what's left. But that's why this game around density is such a big deal. Um, because if you don't allow more housing to be built towards the middle and centre of our cities, then by definition, the people who've got the least money are the ones who wind up with the least desirable housing will be right on the edge. Um, so that's why it's such a big deal. That's why locking up so much of Brisbane as um, Queensland is is actually a big problem in the long run. Um, because you know people naturally tend to kind of develop first the bits of a city, whether it's Brisbane, Sydney, or Melbourne. They they develop the bits of the city that are the nicest bits to live in. You know, tend to have you know a bit higher rainfall and you know nicer you know sea breezes and all the rest of it. Uh, and so if you then lock up those areas, by definition, you're making you know condemning everyone else to, to less pleasant places. I think you also in effect are raising the issue about what do we do about um, the old stock of housing. And that, of course, also goes to planning. You know, one of the ways that you deal with really old stock is say, well, it's really old stock, but if you knock it down, you can turn it into two apartments and by definition, you're going to make more money out of that. And so you naturally build renewals into the system. Where that gets really tricky is with old public housing. Like all housing, it tends to deteriorate over time. And that's, I think, been one of the really big challenges for state governments is they've got this stock of housing that got built in the 50s and 60s, it's very old, it's deteriorated a lot, and the cost of, of rebuilding it is actually chewing up mm. a very large part of their housing budgets. Um, so they're not actually getting any increase in social housing, um, even though they're spending a lot of money, because all they're doing is effectively refurbishing some of the social housing they've already got. But, if it, do but it does potentially represent a great redevelopment opportunity um, and, and, uh, and, and a way to add to social and affordable housing overall. Um, it's often well located and therefore quite suitable for greater density. So out of density, you can get additional social housing as well as getting a mixed tenure in there so that you avoid the over-concentration issues that I was talking about. That's where I think the community housing sector has a role mm. to play because state governments are often reluctant to take on that themselves. They'll often do deals, as they are in Melbourne, with private developers to do that kind of a job. But I think we need to have a, a, a more robust community housing sector that can take on some of that development role of existing public housing, transfer it into a different kind of framework and get bonuses as a result. And I think you have to be very careful when you do let private developers do that, that you don't simply aim at maximising the price you get for the property. So one yep. of the problems that's emerged in Melbourne is that the private developers say, we'll, we'll be able to sell this for more if there's literally one entrance for poor people and one entrance for rich mm. people, mm. which, of course, frustrates the precise objective mm. of mm. mixing it up that you're after and that I'm deeply sympathetic to. Um, and so that's something where the state government needs to resist it and say, look, we accept we're going to make a little bit less money out of the property, but there is a social objective here yeah. and there will be common doors for everyone because we are not just trying to maximise the econo economics of this, we're also trying to maximise a series of social objectives. Brilliant. Yep. One last question. <laughs> Maybe Let's... There was one there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's... I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Just hang on for one second. We'll just go here. And then here. I'm Ray Bricknell from U3A Brisbane. Um, 
the Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore once delivered a very famous speech at the London School of Economics where he talked about a policy in Singapore where their government housing developments require a spread of uh, socio-economic and, and racial groups within the thing. And, and as John just said, they absolutely insist on shared entrances and that sort of thing. Uh, in places like the eastern suburbs of Sydney, hell will freeze over before any council there would approve that sort of development, surely, in their area. Uh, so is there, in fact, a role for the state governments to step in and insist on that sort of thing happening? And how the hell would you persuade them to do it? Well, I think this is where mandatory inclusionary zoning in redevelopments has a place to play. And we might be a little bit harsh on, on Waverley Council. Um, they, they, they have actually done a few redevelopments which haven't been too bad, actually. So, so we'll exclude Waverley. Um, <laughs> some of the others we, we might agree about. But, and Singapore is, is, a, is a particular and special case which isn't really replicable anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> it's full of great policy ideas. Um, uh, that um, you know, we all know the right answer, but we couldn't do here very quickly. So they, they had timed congestion pricing in 1987. And we all, every economist in the world knows it's the right answer, but you know they've done it, and almost no one else has. On the other hand, one or two other things about you know social control and government control in Singapore that maybe we would be less keen on imitating. Mm -hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Your hair's short enough, John. You'll be right. My question <laughs> is based on. Adrian's last comment about politicians being followers and <coughs> people being the leaders. Um, how can we, what sort of narrative or what is the narrative to make people leaders so they will address homelessness? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> we wow. might need another hour and a half for that <laughs> one. But, uh, but I think broadly speaking, it is about organising locally and connecting that. Um, I was in Belgium recently at a, at a forum down there. The solutions in Belgium are going to be different to the solutions in Brisbane, um, but it does have to be driven locally and the locals down there are getting very active, have created their own um, community housing plan, their own development prospects, they're engaging the, the local governments uh, there, um, Nambucca and um, and Ballingen itself, or Coffs Harbour, and you know they're actually getting some way with that kind of thing. So I do think people need to organise locally and then get involved with organisations like Shelter, follow the Grattan Institute, join the Everybody's Home campaign, so on and so forth, because I think it's through that growing collective action and the thing is to have plans in place. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed about governments over the years is that when they come in, and we've, we've got a situation at the moment, they don't always know what they want to do. Sometimes they even get elected by surprise. <laughs> um, and they don't necessarily have an idea. So you, if, if we have ideas ready to go for them, then they're more likely to adopt it. I, I know that going into the 2007 election, um, the Labor Party picked up a lot of ideas from an affordable housing summit group that I was involved in at the time. 
and that led to some, some good things like the stimulus that John and I would both agree with, um, which is why I chose that one, John. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, so I think having ideas developed, having thought about it, developing your own strategies to do it is the way to go because you never know what the opportunity uh, might bring. Uh, the only thing I would add to that, uh, which very much picks up on something that Scott started with, is um, we should not be afraid to talk about this as a moral issue. You know, ultimately, most public policy is about trying to achieve moral ends um, and say, look, we are doing this because we have obligations to everybody in our community, including those least fortunate, and um, that's one of the major reasons we're doing this. I mean, one of, one of my kind of really confronting experiences in this is I spent the better part of a decade um, chairing uh, a project for um, homelessness in Melbourne um, called the Journey to Social Inclusion Project mm -hmm. Social Sacred Heart Mission. Uh, and quite early on in that project, as we were kind of sitting there as kind of, you know, technocrats, you know, talking about how we were going to organise the project and how we were going to measure it and all of that, someone said, so, so you know, we're kind of comparing people who are and aren't part of the program. What do we do about the people who die in the middle of the program? I sat there and I went, ah. Oh. I said, well, I, I suppose we count them. Um, because that's one of the most horrifying things. The, the, the evidence that's now emerging out of that project in its latest iteration, because the data collection's a bit better, is that one of the major implications of homelessness is that the death rate is a lot higher. Essentially, a lot of people who are homeless die, and we don't even know that that happens a lot of the time. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of the ultimate moral obligation, and we should talk about that. Mm. I have, we need to wrap. I have one last question for the two of you, though. And this is where political pressure and policy pragmatism, I think, really come to bear. There's something we have not talked about at any stage today. And that's if we have a generation now who are out of the housing market effectively, they're going to continue to grow old. And they're going to go on to the aged care pension that was designed with the presumption that by that stage, rent would not be a factor. And they reach that stage, and rent is a huge factor. I mean, this is a, talk about a point where all sorts of different social and policy pressures come to bear. Is this a particular point at which a degree of policy imagination and political pressure can be brought to bear. I think that's actually one of the best opportunities in this space. Um, uh, you know, um, those on New Start are in some quarters regarded as undeserving poor, whereas those on the pension who are renting are regarded as deserving mm. poor. I hasten to add, those are not judgments I endorse, mm. Mm. but there are plenty of people who think like that. Uh, and we have a solution effectively already designed for this known as Commonwealth Rent Assistance. Basically, if you're on a pension and you're renting, then you get Commonwealth Rent Assistance. The problem is it's by and large nothing like enough. There's a capped amount that you can get, uh, and given the price of rents in most places, it's nothing like enough. Uh, and so I think there is a political opportunity to say we're really worried about these 66-year-olds um, who can't afford the rent, um, disproportionately single women mm, and right. so we are going to increase commonwealth rent assistance 
Uh, and hopefully a byproduct of that is that we will also increase Commonwealth rent assistance for everybody under the age of 66, and that would be a good thing. So I think that's one of those funny areas where good politics might just perhaps overlap with good policy. Interesting. I'd add that I think it's also a case for building more affordable and social housing because pensioners fall within those categories that we're, we're describing and many pensioners currently live in social housing. There's another dimension to it, and it's happening now. This, this issue is happening now. So we're seeing increasing numbers of older people enter retirement without owning their own homes and having to rent. And we're also seeing that the fastest growing cohort of people experiencing homelessness is older women, older mm. single women. So uh, there's a couple of other things that we need to think about. One is that we're going to be seeing more older homeless people who actually need aged care. There's a service in Melbourne mm. called Wintringham. Um, there's a, a examples of it elsewhere as well. But it, it specialises in aged care for people who have been homeless. Now, there is a dimension that you need a homelessness lens around some service provision, and that would be one of them that I would identify that we need to think about. So we're going to need to see an expansion of that service system as well. But John's right, we have mechanisms like rent assistance and we have a social housing system. Both of those things can be expanded. Will you please join me in thanking John and Adrian. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.